are back for uh, for this this uh, I tell you this is tough for me. Uh, hope you're doing great, and we got great things coming, but we got to get through some tough stuff first, okay? And uh, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to start right off reading this um, this paper that C. Truman Davis put together in 1965. Concerning what did the body of Jesus go through. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Matter of fact, I've edited the whole thing to come up with several of these pages. I'm not going to read all of this by any means. But I want us, I want us to get a, a, a true and accurate picture of what took place. So, he will say in this that um, he said... Uh, the infinite psychic and spiritual suffering of the incarnate God in atonement for the sins of fallen man, I have no competence to discuss. However, the physiological and anatomical aspects of our Lord's passion we can examine in some detail. What did the body of Jesus of Nazareth actually endure during those hours of torture? So hang on to your hat. Let me clarify something before I begin. And this may or may not bother some folks, but it's apparent, this is what he found in his research. Put it to you that way. The type of cross that Jesus was crucified on, he'll, he will say, was not the typical Roman cross that we think of, but it was called the Tau Cross, T-A-U, that's, that's Greek for the letter T. And the way it worked was like this. The letter T. Can everybody see that okay? And it was in two parts. The, uh, let's see, the, make sure I get which one, right, which one is which. Yeah, the stipes. The stipes was the vertical pole, and it was usually planted in the ground. It stayed there on, at Golgotha. The patibulum, that's the crossbar. That's the part that the condemned person would carry. Okay? Now, that's one thing to clarify, just so you understand. The, now, the, and he actually said this, too, because there was always a sign put above the head of the condemned person this stated their crime. And he said that could very easily give it the look of the Roman cross that we're so familiar with. It doesn't matter, okay? But it is interesting. Now, the only other thing that he'll talk about that he, he felt the need to clarify was the nails driven into Jesus and his, hang on, into his hands. Into his hands. They were actually driven between the bones of the wrist right here. Okay, which and he clarifies that's considered part of the hand uh, through it, it all, all of time, especially in art and literature. That's part of the hands. Okay, so that's not a violation of what it says. But what happens is, is he said if you had driven a big this big wrought iron nail through the palms of the hands and then the weight of the body, it, just, it would rip right through. This would support the weight of the body. Okay, just clarify those two things. <clears throat> all right, are we ready for this? <clears throat> Here we go. The upright post or the stipes was generally permanently fixed in the ground at the site 
of the execution. And the condemned man was forced to carry the patibulum, apparently weighing about 110 pounds, from the prison to the place of execution. <clears throat> a titleless or small sign stating the victim's crime was usually carried at the front of the procession and later nailed to the cross above the head. And he explains that sign could make it look like the, uh, the form of cross we're used to. The physical passion of the Christ begins in Gethsemane. Of the many aspects of this initial suffering, I shall only discuss the one of physiological interest, the bloody sweat. I think I forgot to mention this. I can't believe I did. He sweat blood. Luke's account. He sweat blood. That's for real. It is interesting that the physician of the group, Luke, is the one to mention this. He says, and being in agony, he prayed the longer, and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Every attempt imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away this phase, apparently under the mistaken impression that this just doesn't happen. A great deal of effort could be saved by consulting the medical literature. Though very rare, the phenomenon of hematidrosis, or bloody sweat, is well documented. Under great emotional stress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat, sweating blood. This process alone could have produced marked weakness and possible shock. We will move rapidly through the betrayal and the arrest. I must stress again that important portions of the passion story are missing from this account. This may be frustrating to you, but in order to adhere to our purpose of discussion, this is necessary. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. It was here that the first physical trauma was inflicted. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him to identify them as they each passed by, spit on him, and struck him in the face. In the early morning... Jesus, battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, is, takes, is taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress Antonia, the seat of government of the procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. He pronounces, we, we've been through that, he had him flogged and crucified. Preparations for the scourging or the flogging are carried out. The prisoner is stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. It is doubtful whether the Romans made any attempt to follow the Jewish law in this matter of scourging. The Jews had an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. The Pharisees, always making sure that the law was strictly kept, insisted that only 39 lashes be given in case of a miscount. But this wasn't the Jews administering this flogging. This was the Romans. They didn't have that law. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum or flagellum in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again 
and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are then broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. If you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, that scourging scene, that's the first time people have got it right. I know I was there the first night it opened. And when this scene was taking place, I nearly stood up and screamed, Stop! That's enough. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. So a small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns are woven into the shape of a crown and this is pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious, much bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back. This had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds and its removal, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage causes excruciating pain, almost as though he were again being whipped and the wounds again begin to bleed. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans return his garments. The heavy patibulum of the cross is tied across his shoulders and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, the execution detail of Roman soldiers headed by a centurion begins its long, slow journey along the Via Dolorosa. And in spite of his efforts to walk upright, the weight of the heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by copious blood loss, is just too much. He stumbles and he falls. He he can't even stand up. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the, the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise... But, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a North African onlooker 
Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock. And the 650 yard, that's over six football fields. The 650 yard journey from the Fortress Antonia to Golgotha is finally completed. The prisoner is again stripped of his clothes except for a loincloth which is allowed the Jews. And the crucifixion begins. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild analgesic mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the patibulum on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The patibulum is then tied in place at the top of the stipes, and the sign reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is then pressed back against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees slightly flexed. The victim is now crucified. Now, the, the reason they leave some flexion, some movement, well, what will happen is that lets the, the, the person crucified is going to sag down for a while on the, the nails through their, through their wrists. But what happens is they, they can't, ultimately can't breathe because their muscles become paralyzed and cramped. They can't breathe. So they'll have to push on the nail in their feet to push upward to breathe. So there's movement going on here. Listen. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots <clears throat> shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. You see, the, the nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. And as he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As his muscles fatigue, there you go, great waves of cramps sweep over them, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are able unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but he can't straighten up to exhale. Jesus fights to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. So spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen Six hours. Six hours. He went through that. Oh, that's right. He did that for you. He did it for me. Six hours he went through that. It 
it was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences which are recorded. The first, looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice for his garment. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. They don't know what they're doing. Amazing. The second to the penitent thief, thief on the cross next to him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Wow. What a moment. The third looking down at the terrified, grief-stricken adolescent John. John was there. The only one of the disciples that made it to the crucifixion scene. He said to John, Behold your mother. He's, he's, he's referring to Mary. And then looking to Mary, his mother, he said, Woman, Behold your son. Talking about John. He was worried about who was going to take care of his mom. You're amazing. He was worried about his mom. And John was going to take care of her. The fourth cry is from the beginning of the 22nd Psalm. And these are famous words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll come back to that. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn, is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium, the, around the heart, the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. Let us remember again the 22nd Psalm, the 14th verse. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. <clears throat> That's the 22nd Psalm. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. Excuse me. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain and Jesus utters his fifth sentence. I'm thirsty. Oh. His humanity crying out, you know. I'm, I'm thirsty. A sponge soaked in Pasca, the cheap sour wine, which was the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted to his lips. He apparently doesn't take any of the liquid. The body of Jesus is now in extremis. And he can feel the chill of death. This realization brings out his sixth words, possibly little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. And with one last surge of strength, 
He once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. He died. The rest you know. In order that the Sabbath not be profaned, the Jews asked that the condemned men be dispatched and removed from their crosses. The common method of ending a crucifixion was by cura fracture the breaking of the bones of the legs. This prevented the victim from pushing himself upward. Tension could not be relieved from the muscle of the chest and rapid suffocation occurred. When they came to Jesus, they saw it was not necessary. He was already dead. Apparently to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance through the fifth inner space between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. The 34th verse of the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John says, And immediately there came out blood and water. Thus, there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and blood from the interior of the heart. We therefore have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that our Lord died not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. Heart failure. God died that day in His humanity. He died. That's right, that's, that's for you. So, sometimes in talking to non-believers, I've heard them say, hey, I didn't ask him to do that for me. And I'll say, I know, isn't that amazing? And he did it anyway. <clears throat> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to stop there tonight. I've had enough. Okay. We got great stuff coming. But we, we had to get through that. And I'll tell you what let's do. Let's, let's, let's pray. Let's pray together. Dear sweet Jesus. You're absolutely amazing. And I know this was difficult for you. That's what makes it so much more amazing. If it had been easy, it would have been no big deal. It was, it was so difficult. And you did it anyway. Help us to understand. That's because you love us so much. The Father's will ultimately was most important to you. But because you loved us so much. You didn't call down 12 legions of angels. You did it. So we say thank you. I pray that it's not just in words that we say thank you. 
I pray that our lives will show you more and more every day that we're trying to be more like you. And help us to live for you. Because of the love you've shown us, let us show our love to you in return by being the people you would have us to be. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And amen. Okay, guys. Good night. And, uh, hey, exciting stuff. Good stuff coming. Don't miss next week. Good night. Thank <laughs> you.